Hi, and welcome to the Just Riding Along Show. Hello and welcome to episode 112. The show's either going to be elk and hiking or funny smelling mics. I like funny smelling mics. I, look really I mean, I don't really like them because I have to have it right next to my face, but I like that as a show title. But we got new microphones. Thanks to my coworker for the great recommendation. I was in a meeting and I was like, man, your mic looks real cool. And he was like, yeah, I used to do some voice work. And I was like, I need a microphone recommendation. And I got these. I can't remember the model. It's a Sure. Well, I know that Sure, at least Sure used to be like the baller thing because I had, I have, I guess still maybe, an ex who went way into debt buying all of the Sure DJ equipment. Yeah, I mean, Sure, sure does like there. all the, any live performance you ever see is like all Sure microphones. All right. Well, that's what we got now. We got something in common with Taylor Swift. <laughs> that's it that's, that's, that's the, the only thing that's the whole show <laughs> i think maybe we're all a little loud uh no it's just you're you're it really both, picks up on my you're laugh both a tiny bit loud you were clipping there for a little bit all right well we'll see if we can smooth out the kinks over the rest of the show bear with us there's always growing pains uh let's do patrons I have to navigate on Andrea's computer, which we all know is my nemesis. Is this the right page? I got it queued up for you. That's All right. We're going to start at $10 a month. We got Zozo, Zach, Will, Tom P, Todd, Ty, Tennessee Zach, Japerboard Bro, SCG Shuko, Sam Peklin Racing, Sam, Ryan, Parker, Noah, Nick, My Pal Dow, MTB Shenanigans, Lloyd Christmas. I don't, I don't think that's their real last name. Uh, Leland, Kenny Sucks, Ken, Josh, Josh, Jeff, JC, Jara Dix, Jake with no wittiness. Or Jake D with no wittiness, the imposter, the real Jake D. I ride a bicycle because I have a small <laughs> penis. Green Giant, Gordon, G-Man, F that guy, Mark, Ezra, Trilla, G, Evan, Eric, Drew, Draped Up and Tripped Out, Dr. Dick and Posse, <laughs> Dan, Captain Pickle, Cam Irish, Juan, Billy Single Speed, Bilbo Baggins, Alec, AJ, Aaron. We got Esker Cycles at 1169. Then we've got... Lead Out Sports and Josh from the Intesa at 14 kangaroo ears. Dean at 16 and a half kangaroo ears. We got Scott, Poop Wrench, Joe, Brady, Anthony at Affordable Trail Solutions at 20. Harley at 30. Troy at 31. Brad at 32. Six Pack Outdoors at 50. And speaking of kangaroo ears, uh, today on Instagram, I posted a picture of an elk scrotum. You heard that right, people. It is the ball sack. From an, from a bull elk, because in Colorado, you have to keep that attached to your animal until you process it. And I processed that piece of animal today, and uh, I'm going to make something. I'm going to tan it, and I'm going to make something out of it. And I put that on Instagram on my stories, and Brady sent me a link to where you can buy a kangaroo scrotum coin purse. I was going to say, you should, make, the- uh, you should make a coin purse. Yeah, I'm going to try. I'm hoping it's enough that I can hold a phone and a wallet. So then in the summertime, I don't carry a purse, but in the summertime, like that stuff's always like I got to jam it in pockets and stuff and none of my pants fit. So it tries to pull my pants down and it's just, it's a long story. So yeah, more on that later. Is it like wrinkly and or hairy? It's very hairy, but it's not wrinkly at all. It's a very nice piece of pelt actually. (laughs) Are you going to keep the hair on it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll keep the hair on it. i got to keep my stuff warm. Brush it against your cheek every once in a while? Of course. <laughs> Look, tanning chemicals are serious. There will be nothing dirty or anything about it once it's finished. It'll be like a, like a fur coat, you know? It'll just be a known carcinogen after that. Yeah, exactly. It just won't be a dirty one. So what's next? I don't know. I... I keep saying I'm going to ride my bike, and I don't. I went for a run this week. I've been working a little bit on Tom's Talaria. You'll notice the last week's show was really terrible, and that was on purpose. See, I had this sneaky suspicion that if we posted nothing, we would get a lot of feedback of, hey, where's the show? Here's where's the show? Here's where's the show? So I very quickly and hastily threw something together that tells people there's no show. And... We'll talk about why here in just a little bit. Yep. So 
I went for a run yesterday at lunch and my legs hurt a lot, but I did get to see a, uh, an Airbnb beer again. Every time I've ran recently, I've seen an Airbnb beer and I think it just totally blows their mind that they're out in the middle of nowhere in the sticks and there's this tall skinny man and very tiny pink shorts running down the road. They probably so. think you're another Airbnb person. What does that have to so do with Airbnb? In, well, so we live in this rural neighborhood that is a mix of everything from a hermit, um, literally um, a woman who is a hermit, and she she's very nice, but she never leaves her house. She mail orders almost everything. She doesn't drive. Um, and she everything from that to, you know, close to million dollar homes that are rented out for VRBOs. So um, it's a very eclectic mix of people that you'll see in our very spread out neighborhood. Interesting. Uh, the other thing I got to- So how do you know this and other every- fellow that was running was an Airbnb renter? No, they were. So the previous week when I went for a run, I passed some people that I had never seen before and realized I know my neighbors, like all of them. Yeah. And- I'm running down this hill, and there's this group of people, and I could smell the dude's cologne, no joke, 30 yards before I got to him, probably further. The wind was in my favor to smell him, though, and they were walking at a, I ran at lunch, so they were walking midday, and they were looking, not only did I not recognize them, but they were looking around like they had never been there before, like they were looking at houses. So, Matt, I know you don't, like, interact with a lot of people on a daily basis anymore, but like you're not supposed to like walk up to people you don't know and like smell them. It's probably probably pretty weird. Kenny, this dude was wearing so much cologne as we passed each other. He was walking in the center of the road and I was running down the side of the road and I could just smell him. I just envisioned that you like ran up behind them or beside them, smelled this guy and then said something (laughs) along the lines of you're not from around here. (laughs) <laughs> that's what i do nope um <laughs> and then i knew the persons today was staying at an airbnb because they were driving a car with rental plates and they were death gripping the steering wheel like they were terrified to drive on gravel yeah it's all gravel roads too there's a little pavement like right by the highway but it it doesn't go very far so yeah and then the other thing i got to do this week is i got to cook pizzas and I love cooking pizzas. One of our buddies, Mark Miner, he runs a bakery out of his house here. And he has a big wood-fired oven that he cooks bread in. And this is now the third time that I've cooked pizzas yeah, third time. in the oven. And I actually know what I'm doing now. I I have a good idea on like what the fire needs to look like and how the pizzas need to be turned and stuff. And it's awesome. It's really fun. Um, I love doing it because... The way it works is Mark rolls out the dough like a buffet. You go down through there. You build your own pizza. You give your pizza to me. I jam it in the oven. I get to chat with that person for, like, no joke, two minutes while the pizza cooks. And then I give them their pizza. And I might tell them there's a pizza tax and take a little slice. And then um, they go on and I get to talk to the next person. So it's it's a great way to, like, talk to all the folks that live around here that, that show up and just get to interact with everyone just a little bit. It's if you go to something like that, you end up talking to like the person you really know the most. And this way, I just talk to everybody a little bit. So contrasting with Andrea, who went and laid down in the car for a while. <laughs> so that was my week. Um, let's see what else happened this week that was interesting. Um, I hiked a shit ton, but I'll let Andrea tell that story. Not nearly as much as she did. And then I can't think of anything else of note that I did. Oh, Parker came over and finished up a bike build the other day. He got a Ty Esker Jaffe. And wow, does that thing look good. Yeah, um, it does. And then anything else? Oh, I've been helping Tom a little bit with his Talaria. So getting him some some proper fork on there. Uh, some proper brakes going now. And... Hopefully that thing's ripping by, I don't know, end of day tomorrow, and it's just time to time to party. Yeah, that's all I got. Someone else should talk now. Kenny, you go, because mine's a little bit on the long side. Sure. I've been doing all kinds of shit, actually. Been doing a ton of moto, been having a ton of fun 
still exploring that Hobble Creek area. I think we do, I mean, I probably did two rides since we last talked as far as Moto goes, and that's been awesome. Still love the Talaria. Uh, yeah, the whole rig is just great. The motorcycle just works, takes very little maintenance. I think I've got 1,500 miles on it now or so. It eats rear tires. Other than that, I lube the chain every once in a while, uh, tension it, and charge it, charge it, and go. So that's pretty awesome. I How ha- many rear tires have you been through? Four. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. It's stock power. I don't like spin the tire up much. It's just we do a lot of rocky riding and a lot of hill climbs, and it just eats tires no matter what you do. It just makes a lot of torque. Can you get a Can you get a trials tire in that size? I know it would be even softer, but God, the grip would be amazing. Yeah, you can, and I've thought about it, but I do like to do kind of faster trail riding where you're really nailing corners, and yeah, I'm just a little worried about the side traction, and I don't really have an issue with forward traction right now as it is. Like, I run out of power before I run out of traction, typically, Mm. so definitely a thought. I might try it at some point and see how they are. I'm sure it'd be great. The tire I have right now is very, very soft. Uh, I'm learning that like full motocross tires, they're a little bit too hard for the riding that I do, and they end up I end up ripping knobs completely off of them in the rocky stuff. Right, like, like they're a just, knob will just rip off. Yeah, they're just not made for that. They're made for like loam and to dig down into like motocross dirt. And the stuff I ride is a mixture of just Utah stuff. It's loose over hard. It's big slate rocks. It's lots of like fist sized rocks for miles and. Not really a whole lot of dirt. There's some alpine stuff that has like actual loam dirt, but it's pretty rare. Uh, so yeah, Moto's awesome. The whole rig's great. The ridge line totes it around. Awesome. We bring the generators. We bring the grills. Just hang out, make a half day of it, and it's a ton of fun. So still really enjoying that. Highly recommend that people go try it, especially out here in the West. Like just riding dirt bikes is really cool. I think in other parts of the country, you kind of like almost have to know someone or ride motocross track type stuff. But out here, you can just kind of do whatever you want, which is really cool. Uh, On the bicycle side of things, been playing with some new suspension. I will uh, elaborate more on that probably in the future, but just trying to dial that in. And I've done a bunch of mountain bike riding, actually. So I've probably done five or six rides. Uh, The Kinevo is still fun. It's a good bike, the Kinevo SL. I'm still trying to figure out what I ultimately want. I don't know, like anything... It's hard to just have one bicycle. I've had one bicycle for a really, really long time. And yeah, there's a reason why ultra long travel bikes exist. Medium travel bikes, cross country race bikes, everything in between. For the most part, I'm enjoying the longer travel stuff just with the geometry. And I'm used to riding the moto a lot more now. So honestly, it's a it's a pretty similar experience on the Kinevo SL. The big thing I notice going from moto to mountain bike even with butcher tires two sixes uh, butcher on the front and then a purgatory the v style one it's got like v looking tread on it i'm not sure what generation that is i can't even keep track anymore i think there's like an ultra new purgatory there's the old one that has really like super space knobs and then there's that v-shaped one and maybe there's a brand new one i'd have to look it up i don't remember anyway The biggest thing I noticed going from moto to mountain bike is traction. The amount of traction you get on a moto is like just unreal. And you can like, you can just push the moto down in the corners to get traction. And it's just a lot harder to do that on the bicycle. Boy needs an ass guy. I might have to go ass ass on it. I don't really know. (laughs) Become a double ass man. I'm told you shouldn't run the ass guy in the rear that it's, it's just too gnarly. But we'll see. You'll break too. You break too hard. You get too much braking traction. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Still, it's a good bike. Definitely different than my Levo SL. Obviously, I'm intrigued about a lot of bikes though. There's so much cool stuff out there now. There's the new Levo SL, which is really a subtle difference from my old one. Just a much quieter motor is really what it boils down to. Uh, same battery, same runtime, tiny bit more power, but that's kind of irrelevant. Maybe a full power Levo. I don't know. There's some good deals to be had on full power Levos. Uh, I'll put this out to listener land. Bet your ass there is. I'll have some more details going forward, but we at Hangar 15 Bicycles just bought uh, basically every Levo base carbon on the planet. It's so many. Like, it's so... You guys can't even understand 
how many we bought. It's bananas. So with that said, we will have some really good deals on those bikes and we will offer them with 500 watt hour batteries, 700 watt hour batteries. We will build them. So they're the base carbon, which is like the, it's kind of a garbage build, but it's still a carbon frame, which is the same as the S works. It's the same motor, same battery. If you get the 700 watt hour one. So like the bones of it are really good. It just comes with a non piggyback, just rebound, adjust some type of rock shocks and a gold 35 and SX. So it's arguably a garbage build. It'll work, but it's super cheap. And then we're going to, we got a whole bunch of factory Fox suspension, like a bunch of them, so many that it's insane. And we will retrofit a bunch of our fleet with those as an upgrade. And we'll also have some with transmission. So basically it'll, so it'll be essentially be like a hangar 15 build. You got it. Hangar 15 custom builds and all kinds of flavors. And we're talking like probably in the $6,500 ballpark for a full factory front and rear Flodex Fox 36 grip two transmission carbon Levo with a 700 watt hour battery. Like, and you would definitely be open to helping them out with wheel upgrades at their cost. All right? the things. Yes, exactly. So just throwing that out there into listeners ears. If you're after one of those things, come see us. Um, they can be because you really bought them cool. before everyone else could buy them. Well, no, not really. It's it's the old model, and it's a whole weird thing where they offered it with a 500 watt hour battery. It was like kind of nothing in the range has a 500 watt hour battery anymore. So I think it was scaring consumers off. So they were they're bundling both batteries with the bike now, as of maybe a couple weeks ago or a month ago. And the bike's been on sale at Specialized, but anyway, we're just we're buying up some of the last. It's a maybe technically a 22 model year. I don't remember. It could be a 23. Regardless, it's going away. Specialized is trying to get rid of them. We bought a bunch. They're going to be good deals. So that's that. Also on the just Hangar 15 front, as always, we are looking for people who want to make a career in the cycling industry. So if you're interested in Salt Lake City, we've got six locations. We're building a new building in Lehigh right now. Um, we have other buildings in on the radar. We are a growing company. Uh, we're really good at what we do and we're not scared and I work there. So <laughs> if you, uh, have any interest in doing that, let me know. We've picked up two or three really good people from the show actually. And, uh, some of them still work there. So really cool stuff. So if you or anyone you might know is interested in working retail in Salt Lake city, uh, give me a call. I work at the Draper store. You can find the phone number and, uh, you can talk to me. Yeah, that's your test. If you can't figure out how to call Kenny at Draper, you don't. You're you're not. That is cut that out is work. correct. Yes, you're not cut out for a job. <laughs> uh, what else have I been doing? So yeah, bunch of bike stuff. Kinevo SL is really fun. Playing with new suspension. Uh, like I said, I'll have more updates on that for you guys in the future. And what else have I been doing? I will be. I think we'll do. We'll still do the show next week if I'm not mistaken. But I will be in Europe. Uh, after that for like two weeks. So that will be fun. Just family vacation stuff slash uh, meeting up with uh, a buddy. And uh, yeah, going to be fun. Going to hang out in Croatia for a little bit and then going to go to Nürburgring in Germany and uh, go race some cars. So as long as Kenny's not arrested, he'll have great stories when he's back. No, I highly doubt I would be arrested. Now, there's a possibility I'll wreck something, but you know, that happens. It'll That's what the insurance is for. It is. It's very It's very expensive. You don't want to, even with insurance, you don't want to wreck one of those cars. So we'll see. If it happens, it happens. And I think that is it. So Andrea, what have you been up to? You know, I've been out in the woods hunting. Um, I think last we spoke, I, I think I just had my encounter with like a very angry elk that I couldn't call. Like he wouldn't leave the rest of the elk. But I don't remember if I told that story or not. It doesn't matter. I'll tell a lot more of this on the Antlerless podcast. But I will say, I went to a spot that I had scouted over the summer. It was the first place I actually went over the summer. And uh, when I went there, it was kind of mid-June. There was still some snow on the ground up high. And uh, there were there was a lot of old elk sign up there. And on the way down, I saw a huge bull elk so andrea real quick um to give people some background how much like square mileage would you say do you have in your area that you're allowed to hunt oh gosh i don't know it's basically 
So I hunted with an over-the-counter tag, which in Colorado, um, anyone can just walk up to a place where they sell tags and they can purchase, as long as you have hunter education, you can purchase an over-the-counter tag to hunt a lot of different units in the state. So basically the tag that I had um, gave me access to, I mean, hundreds of, if not thousands of square miles. How many units is that? I don't know off the top of my head how many units there are. So it's multiple units on one tag? Yeah. Okay. I thought for some reason, and maybe it's how it is in Utah or maybe the highly desirable ones, I thought you basically got one unit and that was it. Well, yeah. And that's the highly desirable ones. Yeah. You have to apply and there's like a draw system that it's different in every state. And there are, you can find, if you're curious about those, um, you can message me directly or go to the CPW website and just look at all of their information or for whatever state you're hunting, you want to hunt in. Um, but the easiest way to do it is an over-the-counter tag. Anyone can get them. They're unlimited. And uh, that's how I chose to hunt this year because I wanted to get uh, build up some points so that I can draw for one of the highly desirable units that's not too far from here that I've always just kind of, I've been in it a couple of times and it's just a beautiful, vast wilderness area uh, with lots of open area and I just, I want to hunt there, but I've got to get enough points to hunt there. So, so all, do you guys in Colorado, I know this, we have this in Utah. There's like some super duper special, like one person once a year gets to hunt whatever they want. Is that a thing in Colorado? Oh, it's the governor's tag. Yeah. Or the, I think in some States it's called like a super tag or something. I don't know if they do something like that in Colorado. I don't keep track. Those special, like, pay a bunch of money things i i don't even pay attention to them because i'll just never do it but yeah we have one in utah where like if you want to hunt a rhino or something you can (laughs) yeah well a lot of times it'll be i think they will break them out a little bit by species but a lot of times there'll be like a uh like goat tags are really hard to get like right or sheep tags yeah and there'll be like a governor's sheep tag that goes for like 400 grand a goat tag is that like a sporting thing to do why would you want to shoot a goat not goat, mountain sheep, goat. mountain goat, oh. mountain uh, sheep, bighorn sheep. Mountain <laughs> I was like, goat. man, I got, I uh, mean, I got lucky this year. I drew a chicken tag. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, to back up and answer your question, Andrea's unit was about five hundred square miles. Okay, wow, that's pretty oh, big. Thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, about five hundred square miles. And I had actually, um, I scouted. I don't know, quite half of it, um, but between like hunting, uh, rifle hunting, I've done in the past and. The scouting I did over the summer, I, I pretty much have about half of Unit 86 is where I was hunting. It's the one that I live in. So it's the easiest for me to get to know and explore and all of that. And I did a lot of that over the summer. I found this spot that looked and like you never, it was... And you never run into issues of like not being able to get your local unit? No, because our the one that we live in um, here in Howard is an over-the-counter unit. And it's always one, or it, I don't know, if, as as far as I can tell, it's always been one. I don't know if it's been a draw unit in the past, but it's right now it's over the counter. Got it. Yeah, like the draw units will be somewhere like Steamboat where there's, you know, literal herds of thousands of elk moving around. Yeah. Uh, and like la- last year I hunted in a draw unit. But anyway, uh, so I found this spot. It looked really, really good from the sign that was there from the previous summer. And on the way out of there, like when I was hiking out, I saw a big bull elk, which I felt was kind of like a like an omen. And, uh, you know, I, I hunted the first two and a half weeks or so of the season, and I didn't go to this spot right away. I was going to, actually. I went to camp out to go hunt there. And while I was trying to like get around and glass and kind of get a look into this drainage into this basin area Uh, when I was on my way back to my tent one afternoon I slipped and fell and I bent my right leg like way I like hyper flexed my right leg and it bruised my kneecap and like it was like a, a really bad bruise under my kneecap and so I couldn't take like a I couldn't like climb up on boulder fields and like navigate that kind of stuff for a few days. So I actually had to go before I could go hunt the spot. I had to 
if I wanted to keep hunting, I had to go someplace with a little bit less extreme terrain. And so I hunted somewhere else for like five days. And I finally got back to this place and I, uh, the wind was bad. Um, elk are, if you don't know um, any ungulates, they uh, have a very good sense of smell. And if they smell you, like say you're walking uphill and the wind is blowing at your back and they are uphill from you, uh, they will run off before they even see you. So I didn't want that to happen. So I kind of worked my way like up the rocky edge of this basin so that my scent wasn't blowing around in the middle of it where there might be animals. And I was doing some calling. So you take like a large tube basically and you have a little mouth reed diaphragm and you can make elk noises with it and you do what's called a location call and you um, elk will do that matt's laughing for whatever fucking reason because <laughs> he wants this story to take even longer i was just thinking of you you don't just make elk noises you make horny elk noises with it well a location bugle is not necessarily a horny elk noise it that's what i was laughing about okay so, I was location calling, and no elk were like, yeah, we're over here, like answering me. I was a little discouraged. Um, but there's a spot up at the very top of the basin where, on satellite view, I hadn't scouted it in the summer because there had been snow up there. Um, but on Google, like on satellite view on Google or Onyx or whatever, you can see there's this wallow. And so when it's hot, elk will roll around in mud we're getting lots of like, we're getting lots of good terms here too. Uh, waller, yeah, waller, a, wallow. a crick, a waller. Uh, there was a you didn't say wash. There's some other things. Uh, some some other a kind drainage. of a special hole, a drainage. Okay. Well, that's just like basically the snow melts in the top of the basin and it drains in a creek down to the lower elevations, like down to the Arkansas River. And I could see this wallow on satellite view, and I thought, well, I want to go up and just look at it because it looks like a cool spot. And before I kind of got out of the boulder field where I was and, you know, kind of worked my way into the woods, I, I called. Didn't really hear anything. Um, so I started working my way in there and I hear this noise and I don't know what it is. It's some kind of animal, maybe a hundred yards from where I am uphill where I can't see, just kind of beating around in the, like in grass. It wasn't like elk antlers on tree branches. But it sounded like an animal about the size of an elk just like thrashing around in some grass. Which, what I figured out later, was an elk rolling around and thrashing. They'll like take their antlers and like fuck the mud up with their antlers. Like it's kind of funny. If you watch a YouTube video, like go to YouTube and go to like search for elk in wallow. And they, they're kind of funny. Like they play around in them some. And, and then they pee in them and then roll around in it because bull elk like to smell like pee. They're gross. So um, I hear this. And also the important thing, I hear a pine squirrel. A pine squirrel is the most aggro small squirrel you've ever seen in your life. They will chatter and bark at any animal that gets in their zone. It doesn't matter if it's human, elk, deer, bear, whatever. Any animal that gets near their tree, they will chatter at it and like fuss at it. And I also hear, along with this noise, I hear I hear a pine squirrel just absolutely losing its fucking shit. And I'm like, that's, that's some kind of animal up there. It might be an elk. So I kind of changed my course of direction just to try to get the wind right between me and where this noise is coming from. And I set up in a spot where I have, you know, where I can see a little bit. It's pretty heavy cover. There's some blowdown bushes, trees, all that kind of stuff. And I call and I do what's called a like a display. So like a, a bull elk, if it knows there's other elk in the area, it will get kind of in their, in their bubble and it will call a certain way and it will rake trees with its antlers. And it will just stand in one spot-ish and do that for a while um, just to kind of either challenge a bull that's there or get a cow that might be interested in coming over to see, you know, what's making this noise to come to him. Um, so I do this. And sure enough, this bull elk just comes wandering straight out of the wallow, like straight to me. He never made a noise. He just 
came cruising through the trees. I mean, he looked like a fucking yacht. Like he just was just smooth, just looking around like where's this noise coming from? And the cool thing about hunting in these really far off spots is the elk up there aren't looking for humans. You know, if I was hunting half a mile from the trailhead, the elk that would come into my call would be like, is that a human calling? Because I've I've caught humans trying to call me before. You know, they're suspicious. They want to know what it is and they're looking for danger along with, is it an elk? This elk was not doing that. He was looking for another elk. At one point, the wind blew at my back straight towards him for two or three seconds. It seemed like an hour. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm busted. Like, he's going to smell me and run off. He didn't. Just He just was looking for another elk, and he walked within 20 yards of me. And as he walked behind a tree, I drew. And right when he stepped into an opening, I made a, a noise just to, like, make him stop. And I shot him. And it was a perfect hit. I mean, you couldn't have asked for anything better. It went, uh, it was both lungs. It nicked the heart. He ran and it broke like the back quarter of my arrow off, at which point it turned backwards and went through the diaphragm and into the liver. Like it basically hit every structure in an animal that can bleed very fast. And uh, if he hadn't, he ran uh, just over a little hill back towards where he came from. And I think if, if it had been flat, like if I had a good view, I would have watched him fall down. Like it was really fast. You know, I could not have asked for a better shot than what I got. So, um, yeah, I called Matt after I shot. You know, you generally, if you don't see them fall down, you wait about an hour. Um, because if they're, you know, wounded and they're going to die, they'll just lay down and die. Um, if they're wounded and you, you know, they see you chasing after them, they'll just keep running. So you don't want that to happen. So I waited, went up to a high spot, called Matt. Uh, while I was on the phone with him, I actually had a cow run out of that area straight towards me. And I think what happened was he went over the hill and like crashed down around all the other elk and they got scared and ran out of there. But that's I probably, called Matt. That's probably said, his girlfriend. Yeah, it might have been. Um, it probably was one of his girlfriends for sure. But I called Matt and I said, uh, got good news and bad news. And he's like, oh gosh, what? And I said, I just shot an elk. I think it was a really good hit. I don't know if that's exactly what I said. He's like, okay, what's the bad news? And I was like, you know that snow patch we can see going into our neighborhood? <laughs> he's like, oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> Because that snow patch looks very tiny from the drive into our neighborhood, but I was at eye level with it, basically. It was just across the other side of the valley from me. So I was at 11,400 feet. Is there seriously uh, a snow not... patch in September? Year-round year snow patch. It's this snow round. patch does not go away. Get the fuck out yep. of here. Get the fuck out of nowhere. There's a snow patch I can see every day that I drive to my house. That is some yep. made-up shit right there. <laughs> Kenny? <laughs> It's science, bro. <laughs> Look it up. And right. I'm not trying to cut Andrea off, but I just do want to mention that your voice isn't set up for these long stories. I know. It's not. So would you like me to take over for just a moment? No. No, I want to keep telling it. Because you don't know exactly like what I was doing during that time before you got there. I mean, you kind of have an idea. but um, So I called Matt. And told him, I said, don't do anything until I, because he's like ready to go. He's like, okay, I'm going to head up there. It's like, hold on. Let me, let me make sure that he's dead. Uh, I'm going to give it another, however long it was. It was like, you know, 45 or 50 minutes at that point. It's like, I'm going to wait a little while. Then I'm going to go look for a blood trail. And <clears throat> I waited and I had a snack and I went to look for a blood trail. And sure enough, there was a really good blood trail and I could tell um, it was just bright red foamy blood which generally means it's coming out of their mouth from their lungs and when you see that like they're they're done for like that's that's a deadly hit right there it's going to be pretty quick I found the back quarter of my arrow and it looked really good he had come straight out of the wallow so he was covered in this just shellac of mud and the veins of my arrow like the very back end the little plastic part that 
kind of guides the arrow and keeps it flying straight. Um, that was, it was blood up to that point, and then that was covered in mud. So, you know, that arrow had gone all the way in as far as it, it could without coming out of the other side. And uh, went over the hill and around a couple trees, and there he was. And if you look at my Instagram, you can see videos. Um, there's a very nice five by five bull, which means five antler points on each side. I thought it meant it had five wheel drive. <laughs> uh, five by five bull. And, uh, you know, I went back and, you know, I, I celebrated. I cried a little bit. Uh, went and called Matt and I had to go. It's like a, I don't know, a hundred yard walk to where I had phone service. Uh, called Matt, told him, yeah, he's down. You can come on up. Gave him very vague directions about how to get where I was, um, which, spoiler alert, is not really the best uh, the best way to get up there. If you don't like, it's it's a very there's one very specific way into this place where you don't have to climb boulder fields or blow down. And I didn't. There's one way into this place that has the least amount of blow down in boulder fields. Yeah, exactly. So ended up. I had enough time to gut and quarter the elk, uh, take the head off, which is really, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a very large, strong person, quartering an elk and like rolling it over to quarter the other side is by yourself is really fucking difficult. And somehow through gravity and physics and using every ounce of strength I possibly had, I managed to do it. Uh, And when Matt got there, it was like, okay, let's get these two bags into our packs. And, uh, you know, we took some pictures. Um, I had to get him, like, he had to help me hang the quarters up because they were too heavy for me to actually lift up into the tree where I wanted to hang them. But, yeah, he put them in bags. Like, there are these special game bags that keep the flies out and let the, the air circulate so that the meat can form, like, a dry protective layer on the outside. Um, that's pretty much it for that part and then it got dark and it stormed on us it was thunder snow and it was scary as shit because we were at 11,000 feet and it made everything very slippery Um, all the rocks very slippery it was all the way dark we're navigating by headlamps we have our headlamps on low because we're a little worried about running out of batteries so we ended up having to um, leave the two quarters that we were going to pack out at a slightly lower elevation because it was it was just dangerous. Like we were legitimately we had concerns about, you know, the extra weight of our packs were going to slip and fall and actually hurt ourselves pretty badly. So we had to hang those two up, which meant I had four like limbs, like four quarters, a bag of kind of miscellaneous meat that wasn't on the bone, and a head that I had to hike down from 11,400 feet to the trailhead, which sits at about 8,400 feet. And over the next four days, that's pretty much what I did. I had help. Um, you really buried the lead where we ditched that meat, and or the part where we ditched that meat and we still didn't get back tr- to the truck till 2 a.m. Yeah. And the next morning, I was at work at 8.30, or cl- on, the, on work. I mean, I don't go anywhere. I walk across a bedroom and you were back on the hike yeah yeah I mean I went back out at I think I got out of the trailhead by about 9 45 so yeah we we got it it took us until 2 a.m to get back to the truck because the thing about navigating an area that doesn't have trails is you might look at you know if you have your headlamp on you look at a stand of small aspen trees and you're like shit we can't go that way And so you have to back out and go a different way. And you might do that two or three times before you actually make forward progress. Where in reality, in the daytime, you could look through that stand of aspen trees and like little, you know, six foot tall aspens and be like, oh, if we just push past these two trees, it's totally clear on the other side. So we had to deal with that. Um, It took us forever to get out. And, you know, I was like, this is, you know, it's going to be really awful to get all of this elk out. Well, it turned out that it was not as awful as it seemed that night because I figured out a really solid track to get in and out. 
and you know it was really difficult and I'm really glad I had uh, Mike Franco who runs Vapor Trail and the Salida Enduro. He's also a hunter. Uh, he helped me on Friday with the hindquarters, which were really tough. Mine was, how much was it, 58? Andreas was 58. Mike's was 55. Yeah. On Saturday, I brought out a 45-pound load. Yeah. Um, so basically made uh, two trips by myself to get the bags that we had packed um, slightly downhill. Uh, made a trip with Mike Franco to the carcass itself to get the large quarters down and we deboned them. I had them hung up on the bone and then we basically went up there, deboned the meat so it wasn't as heavy and packed it down. And then Saturday, Matt and I went and did the same thing with the last shoulder quarter and with the head and hiked it out of there and got it done. So So how long yeah, do you been... have um how long do you have before the meat goes bad? Well, it was so cold up there. It was very cold up there. That it was essentially hanging in nature's freezer. Yeah, mm. so it was actually, like, honestly, if there were not animals up there that could eat it, potentially, you could leave it hanging there for a couple of weeks, and it would actually only, like, people pay, people rent refrigerator space to do what the meat was doing up there. It's just my meat was not protected from... Like I had a, a fox, it looked like a fox ate a small hole in one of the bags and sampled some meat. Um, nom, nom, nom. Yeah, so that like did you like did you hang them from trees? Yeah, like, but there's did you, like, no super high up with like ropes or something. Well, so there's no at that elevation. None of the trees are really that big, mm. so we just kind of had to hang them off of dead, like half fallen down trees that were hanging at an angle. So they weren't really hung very high, and that was the only real, like, I don't know, like... If, Trepidation? If, yeah, like, if we had had the option to hang them at, like, a bear-safe level, um, it would have been much less of a rush to get them out of there. It would have been like, oh, I think I'll go get that one today. I'll get the next one in a couple of days after that, because it's honestly, like, it's so cold up there that in the middle of the day, the wallow where that elk had been playing around in... You know, at one in the afternoon, um, it had a layer of ice still on it. So super, super cold up there. There, there was really no danger of meat spoilage. There was really just danger of, uh, you know, critters getting into it. Sure. And then what do you do? Because um, like that's a huge amount of meat. Yeah. What do you do? It is. What do you do to store it and you know bag it and all that kind of stuff? Like, do you freeze pretty much all of it? Um, and like, do you vacuum seal it? Like, what do you do? Yeah. Ultimately like, and let me just talk a little bit to save your voice. Okay. So Andrea went up on, that was Tuesday that you got it on Wednesday. You went back up on Wednesday before and after work. I made it my mission to bring home, take that bag of, of stuff. No, I guess it was on Wednesday. She went back up. So on Thursday I went through one of the bags and then I, and basically when he says, go through it you trim fat and tendons and like the silver skin which is kind of like a spread out tendon um you just basically you trim off the stuff you don't want to eat and you either cut the rest of it into meat for grinding or cut it into steaks or be like i'm gonna keep this one large muscle as a roast and then yeah you just vacuum seal those bags or that that meat and I, I want Kenny to know that, you know, you're getting kind of slim on the, the, like a cut that would be good for steak, like a backstrap. And I diced some up and labeled it meat rice. Excellent. It is a meat <laughs> rice, like perfect for meat rice meat. So, um, and then we got. Well, that's my dream is to make elk meat rice. Your dreams can come true, Kenny, I promise you. So we now, we still have a hindquarter to go through and there is. And it's in a big cooler on ice. Yeah, it's in a. Everything that was brought down either went into a fridge or into a high quality cooler with ice that's been being replenished. So, do you um, have like a ginormous deep freeze? We do. And we're between the chickens and the elk, we're actually borrowing space in a neighbor's freezer as well. Yeah, in Tom's freezer and a neighbor's, which we can move the stuff out of Tom's over to the other one, but that's a that's project a for project. another day. Yeah. So yeah, we um, most of it's frozen. Some people like to wrap it in plastic wrap and butcher paper um, just because you can keep air off of it that way, like wrapping it in plastic wrap. 
and then the butcher paper gives it another layer against freezer burn. I don't like doing that because when you defrost it, it leaks. So I went with vacuum seal. So everything is vacuum sealed. Yep. And nine times six. We have over, we have almost, what would that be? Almost 80 pounds of meat ready to turn into ground, either hamburger style or sausage. And I'm so excited. Yeah, I can't and then we've wait. got, you know, a lot of, we've got enough steak that we can eat elk steak like once a week for the rest of the year. Yeah. I'm and gonna... roasts. I mean, we can basically, we can eat elk. You know, like if we cook a big roast that'll last for a few days, we can eat elk pretty much every day of the year for the next year. So it's it's pretty amazing. Like it's an astounding amount of meat and it's delicious. It's so good. I don't know how many of you have been around for enough years to remember that I, I did my very first rifle elk season. I, I got a cow elk and uh, I don't know if she was like 20 years old or what, but this, this elk tastes better. I mean, that cow wasn't bad at all, but this one is even better. It might have to do with some of the aging that the meat actually got to do up there. No, because I mean, some of that we brought home and ate like pretty much next day. Yeah. And... It's, I think it's just a younger animal, and yeah. I think it's just, I think it's just better. Um, Maybe handled the meat a little better. I don't know, but no, nah, because the other one we didn't, you know, the the pack out was so easy. We didn't let it get dirty, you know. Yeah, and it was like that. I've definitely, you know, talking about butchering it here in my kitchen. I did the quartering part all by myself, which means I had to skin it. Like I had to remove this incredibly mud soaked pelt off of the the meat so it got dirty you know I've had to like cut some parts off that you probably wouldn't you know if, if you had a clean animal and two people um, yeah like I've lost a little bit of meat to the the mud and the dirt but um, it's still just an amazing amount of food in the freezer so yes Kenny you will have elk meat rice I will see to it <laughs> excellent do we want to? Do, do we, we want to talk bikes now? <laughs> do we want to talk about some new shit? We we want to pay the wolf tooth tax. Well, I think what we should do is jump right into the Shimano thing, because that's oh. probably because that's probably the biggest deal in the cycling industry for a very very long time, and I have lots of thoughts. Go for it. I want you to run this narrative because I I tackled the Shimano thing for my company. I kind of like raised the flag and 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 got that got a plan going and I want to hear what you did and and what your thoughts are. Yeah. So for those that are not aware, Shimano released a, uh, I guess it's technically a recall, but the way they're doing it. A voluntary inspection and replacement campaign. Yeah. We're going to call it a recall. Anyway, essentially they're hollow road cranks. It's pretty interesting that it doesn't apply to some other ones, but that's a whole nother story. Essentially Altegra and Dura's cranks for the past 10 years have the possibility of snapping in half essentially because they are two pieces of aluminum that are glued together and there's some overlap in how they're glued together i think maybe there's more overlap than like how the cannondale si cranks go together i'm not positive i haven't like sawed through all of them one um i sawed through a few shimanos over the years but like they're the older cheaper mountain ones and they're just like a straight hollow thing with like a somehow I guess a bladder went in there in the process or something. But anyway, these are like two separately cast pieces that are then glued together. Long story short is the glue or epoxy or whatever they use to glue them together can uh, separate. And I think really what happens is corrosion starts happening because they didn't properly anodize the surfaces inside of the crank that would normally not see the elements. But once water and sweat and salt and all kinds of other stuff get in there, it starts compromising it from the inside and they can like delaminate or crack in half or whatever. It's very bad. And this has been happening for 10 years. People have been breaking cranks and you've seen pictures all over the internet about this. And people have really been harping on it the past two or three years because the numbers of them out there have been skyrocketing. And Shimano was like, no, 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 it's not a problem. It's not an engineering problem. And all the level-headed people are like, uh, guys, this is very clearly a problem. Uh, lots of people have dug in really deep. That Hambini guy, if you ever watch him, he's a little bit of a dick, but he does do a lot of... Aren't we? We are, but... Um, 
We don't like him because we're the dicks that you should listen to. <laughs> anyway, he's got some good info. And uh, I saw way back when I saw his video on the Shimano thing and it all made a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, there's this problem. Shimano finally admitted that there's a problem. But what's really weird is the way that they're handling it. So very clearly, it is an engineering problem. And there's a couple interesting things. One interesting thing is they're saying, oh, this only affects 2019 cranks to 2014 cranks or something like that. 2012 to 2019. So, okay, guys, you're saying it's not an engineering problem, but you changed it in 2019. You changed something in 2019 where you're no longer worried about it, but they look the same. So you changed something. You're either anodizing the inside using different glue or whatever. So it is not not a good look that you realize there's a problem for four years, probably way longer than that, but you actually made a change four years ago. And the whole time we're saying, oh no, there was no problem. There's no engineering problem. So that's pretty jacked up in my book. And number two is they are telling, they're putting the onus of all this on the bike shops, which is whatever. I'm not even that worried about it. They are offering compensation for the amount of time that you're going to do this. It's not the proper amount of compensation, but that's another story. But they're telling bike shops, hey, if someone has an affected crank, which is basically every crank, pull it off the bike, pull the chain rings off, do a thorough inspection. But it's a vi- it's still a visual inspection, right? Like it's still a human being who didn't design the thing looking at it, looking for, you know, failure points. And okay, that's all fine and well, I guess. And they are compensating shops for both pass and fail. So they just want you to fully check it, document it, send it in. Um, and there's the whole nother story of how they're going to replace them. That's a separate topic. Anyway, they want bike shops to inspect these cranks and they're saying, oh, it's not really a problem and it's only some of them, but it's obviously not only some of them, it's all of them. If they're ridden in the right conditions, they're all problematic. So I'm going to deviate from this for a second. Specialized had a similar issue with a clamp on a Roubaix and it was the clamp with one bolt that held your stem on, on the springy, sprongy stem thing on the Roubaix. Yeah, it's a very future shock collar, I believe they called it. It's called a springy, sprongy. So, <laughs> um, very similar issue where if you sweated your balls off and you're a triathlete and it's on a trainer and you drip sweat directly on this thing for a super long period of time, you could corrode it enough that it would break. And if it breaks, your stem comes off. It's bad. And... Specialized said, okay, that's really bad. It's a super, super select circumstance that it happens. I never saw one personally, ever. Have I seen personally six to ten of broken Shimano cranks over the years? Absolutely, I have. Uh, But how many of those... Now, granted, numbers-wise, there's probably less springy sprongies out there than Altegra and Dura's road cranks, right? But regardless, never saw one of those issues. But Specialized said, okay, um, this is too sketchy and too borderline. We're going to replace all of them. And they replaced all of them. I'm not about companies spending money for no reason. But when you have a huge issue like the Shimano thing with a huge past of tons of these things breaking, like tens of thousands. So I think there's like 5,000 documented ones, but those are the ones that found their way to Shimano, by the way, not just someone who snapped it and just bought a new crank or whatever, right? So I guarantee the number is probably at least four times that. So I'm going to say it's in the 10 to 20,000 ballpark. And a bunch of people got hurt, some of them very seriously, Um, like gnarly blood loss from getting skewered with ripped apart cranks and stuff, like nasty stuff. And obviously the two worst things that could ever fail, three worst things that could fail on your bike are fork, stem, slash bar, and cranks. Like those are super duper bad. You don't ever want one of those to break. Like if other stuff on your bike breaks, probably not a huge deal. You're probably not going to die. I mean, let's lump handlebar and fork together just for shit. Sure, sure. You know, but this is an extremely important thing. I mean, like you think I'm ripping down a hill and my cranks snap. Uh, Yeah, your fucking foot is going to hit the ground at 30 miles an hour and really bad shit's going to happen. You're going to just crumple one part of your body and you're going to have some gnarly crash, probably a low side that's going to turn into a high side, like just horrible stuff. Anyway, it's just wild to me that Shimano is saying, oh, we'll just inspect them. And if they're not actively failing, they're fine. Holy shit, guys. That is the absolute wrong way to approach this. So 
And I'm not obviously alone in this sentiment. Uh, they just need to really rethink their strategy there. That is irresponsible at best. So they obviously know there's an issue. They just need to recall all those cranks and get them swapped out. And I understand that's a big deal. That is yeah, somewhere I mean, in the ballpark of two and a half million units. Is the Oh, I thought it was 680,000. In the U.S. Oh. Then there's Canada and Europe. Well, so Canada only got like 80,000. Something like that. So it's I guess it's like 750,000 in North America. That is correct. So the number I read was I think two and a half million worldwide was the estimate. So Wild it's, shit. It's a big number. I don't want Shimano to go out of business, but goddamn, they really just should have. They should have hit this way earlier and and got behind it or in front like of in it. Like in 2013, like 10 years ago. Well, yeah. I mean, there's lots. I think of, there is a corrosion period that has to occur, though. You know, so I, I it agree. wasn't it wasn't a problem in 2013. But it was a known thing. I mean, I feel a- like I've seen, I saw one of these separations at outdoors when Kitty and I worked there. Oh, I guarantee that we did. 100%. We just didn't really know what to think of it because it was kind of weird at the time, right? But very obviously, you can look, there's a, you can search for it. There's an Instagram That's page. what I was about to say. There's an Instagram page dedicated to this called Thanks Shimano. <laughs> but the number of unique pictures. Like, for example, Google, I don't know, uh, you know, carbon SRAM crank failure. You're going to find like three pictures. This Shimano one, you're going to find thousands and they're all unique. So this is a big, this is a big real deal. Anyway, I'm just kind of blown away that they haven't done a sweeping recall. And I get it. It's hard from a financial standpoint. And also like, do they have two and a half million crank sets just ready to rip? Like, yeah, obviously not. That's a pretty insane thing to ask of them but anyway i think that it's just it, it's a shit situation it's not fun i'm not i'm not making fun of shimano or and again i don't want them to lose money i think the best thing that can happen in the cycling industry is that we have two or three really big players in the component space that we have a a sram and a shimano and hopefully a third one and they duke it out all the time and come out with really good products and fight each other on price and making the best product like that's the best thing that can happen for the world consumers everything so i'm not like i don't want shimano to fail but i just but their cranks are i think this is this is asking for some trouble big time that they're just saying oh it's not a problem until it fails so essentially what they're asking the bike shops to do is find cranks that are about to fail and pull them that's it so pretty insane i i'm sure there's other stuff i'm missing uh matt andrew do you have any other thoughts on this yeah i've heard some speculation that and this is just speculation that the CPSC isn't going to let this fly. That this voluntary recall, that the CPSC is going to start digging in and find more instances and more numbers than Shimano is publishing. Yeah, well, hopefully hopefully are- Steve gets on Thanks Shimano Instagram and goes, holy shit, uh, guys... This is this is a big deal. Or hopefully they look at the you know medical records of the people that uh, augured themselves on cranks or because of these cranks and are like, okay, this is this is a big deal to my knowledge. And again, this is oh this is a while ago, and I don't want to misquote, but I'm fairly certain back to the specialized thing that they said there were no reported. I think they said there were a few reported failures, but no reported injuries or something along those lines. And that's what you should do if you have quite a few failures but no reported injuries yet you should be like holy shit right now is the time (laughs) let's fix this yep yeah i mean i agree with you guys it's it's pretty fucking nuts i mean if i had one of these cranks and it had no play in it and it didn't look like it was about to fail i wouldn't want to ride it yeah by the way fuck that i would not ride that thing are you kidding me and rightfully so some customers are pissed off and you know we don't have a lot of answers yet and by the way i've called um you know reps don't have answers there's like a phone number you can call, but it's like some third party thing. They have no fucking idea what's going on. Uh, also, that's so much complexity. What do you do with stages, power meter cranks? And there are provisions for all this stuff, right? I'm just saying this is very complicated. And also, I had a customer call me um, the other day and said, hey, um, my crank exploded on me and you guys replaced it, remember? And I looked up history and we did. And that was three or four years ago. And he's like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know, man, because I can't submit it without the cranks. And of course, they're gone. So the, me, just me, already had first day someone with a failed crank. And guess what? 
that wasn't submitted to Shimano. So I guarantee this is a way bigger problem. I have a feeling that we're going to see the CPSC come in with something and change this, but then those customers like yourself, like the one you're talking about that have previously been denied coverage and been, you know, pretty much told to piss off user error. I I feel like there's going to be a class action lawsuit if I had to guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So I think Shimano is possibly in for a world of hurt on this one. It sucks. I don't know what else to say. Like, I wish I had something more positive to say about it. But yeah, I don't think that this thing was handled correctly. I think there's going to be a lot of really angry people. And I don't really think it's the safe decision. And it's going to cost Shimano a lot of money either way. And it's a bummer. Yeah. Now can we pay our wolf tooth tax? <laughs> sure. Can we uh, can can we sign off after that? Are we hey, finished after hey, the wolf tooth tax? Yeah, we probably should. Hey, wolf tooth. Um, if you're designing products, I wouldn't glue two pieces of aluminum together. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Here's a free one. Don't use glue. Wait, no. Hold on. Don't make something that needs glue. How about that? There you yeah. go. Yeah, you should you should glue shit together that was broken that you have no other choice but to glue it back together. Probably shouldn't glue shit together to make it work like from the get go. Oh, speaking of glue, I got a I I had a my my hunting boots that I bought back in April. The stitching started to come out, and uh, I ended up Shields. Thank you very much. Uh, warrantied them in their customer satisfaction guarantee. Gave me a uh, an e gift card. They were going to send me new boots, but I'm like, nope, I'm going to replace these with something else. And please just give me store credit because I'll shop there. They've got lots of shit. I bought a $470 pair of Kinetrek boots. I never heard how much those cost. Well, they were on sale, so they didn't actually, but that's their normal retail price is $470. The third time I wore them, the rubber rand, which is glued onto the leather, started to separate from the leather. So those are about to be sent off for their own warranty. <laughs> so yeah, glue, not the best choice for things mm, that need nope. to actually stay together. The the wolf tooth tax, wolf is, tooth tax. is kind of long and complicated, but they released a new Voitech. It uses, I'm going to try to breeze through it. It has the rear adjustable tuning chip like always. It has a front reach adjustment just like a... Stump jumper, essentially, or like stump you can, jumper Evo. You, just, you put on whatever length stem you want. No, like it has headset cups that adjust the reach, mm. like a stump jumper Evo. Why would you like? It just moves the fork forward, but it doesn't tilt it. Like it doesn't adjust the head tube angle. It does by one degree. Yeah, oh. it's, that's what I mean. It's just like the stump jumper Evo. Why would you call that a reach adjustment? That's such a strange thing to say. Well, it, that, I'm that. Uh, it's a headset. Ju- they call it a reach adjustment, but it's also a one degree slacker, steeper head head tube angle adjustment. Let's call it a flippy chip. Uh, Front flippy chip and rear flippy chip. Yep. Yep. And it has a dished rear wheel, so you can run wider tires with the same narrow Q factor. So the rear wheel is dished five degree or five millimeters drive side. And, of course, the internet is pissed off because it's going to take special wheels. It's a fucking fat bike. It already uses special wheels. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, I know. The, like, how many... Who the fuck has, like, it's, multiple it's fat dished. bike wheels? I don't want to meet also, that it's, person. It's a change in the dish of the wheel. It's not proprietary parts or anything. It's you. either you do it yourself or you go to Scott Banks and you're like, Scott, make this where it works. And he does it in 30 fucking seconds because he's Scott fucking Banks. So yeah, we just got, get we a got Scott a, Banks the, of your own. <laughs> and <laughs> the internet's just got to stop getting mad about bicycle stuff not being the same. If you want it to be the same, then it's never going to get better, guys. Like, just fucking stop it. It's fine. Stuff will change. You'll be able to find old parts. You might have to read a little bit to find out what the spec is or whatever. You will be okay. Stop moaning and groaning about it. And they give you the spec of this bike from, like, you know, tire clearance and all the normal stuff to the fucking st- Torque of the stem bolts. I mean, that's in their specs is six newton meters of torque on the stem bolt. Like, they give you all of the information that you need. It's it's great. Um, and when they say that it doesn't ride like a fat bike, that is true. If you put more air than fat pressure and go ride on dirt, it, it rides really fucking well. That, that is not true. 
That is that is. I thought no, it rode like a normal hardtail no, when you put no eight no, psi in. No, it. no. This is the same as pedals like a hardtail or pedals like a one twenty bike when it's a all mountain bike. No, it's redesigning or redefining is what I meant how a fat bike can ride. That's what it's doing. I, I understand what they're going for, but that's that it's a huge pet peeve. It pedals like a hardtail. No, 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 no. It it pedals like a really it redefines how efficient a full suspension bike can be. Or in this case, it redefines how well a fat bike can perform. I know what they're going for, but it's just it pisses me off. Well, it can piss you off all at once. I'm talking about when I the first time I rode a Voitech, I took it out on Salida Mountain Trails with no snow. So I ran like, I don't know, six and eight PSI or eight and ten or something dumb like that. And it literally felt like I was just riding a normal fucking hardtail. Yeah, so it's it's just redefining how well a fat bike can ride. Sure, you can define it like that, or you can say that it doesn't feel like a normal fat bike. We're saying the same thing, you're just mad about it. No, but then when every other fat bike rides like some big giant turd, it shouldn't just be like, oh, it's a fat bike, what you gonna do? It should be, obviously they didn't try as hard as Otso. And that's how there we pay go. our wolf tooth tax. <laughs> Ching. All right. Well, then we're going to blow the rest of the stuff off and uh, call it a day. Can we make fun of that Thule thing? I really want to make fun of the $4,000 Thule hitch tent. It's a, a cot tent that can go on the hitch of your vehicle. And then you take it off and you set it up just like the, I don't know, Cabela sells it for like $200, like a cot it, tent. It's, well, and, and outside of the U.S., they'd be called a swag. And it's essentially a quadruple size swag that costs $4,000 that goes in the hitch rack of your SUV. And when you get to your campsite, you take it off and you set it up. Yeah. I, I don't understand tent. it. You could, yeah, this is... It's four thousand fucking dollars, and it's like if you don't want a rooftop tent. Well, I mean, I don't want a rooftop tent, but I also don't want a fucking cot tent. So yeah, to put it in perspective, oh god, I looked this up after looking at this on my lunch break. Um, what was the name of that one? For two hundred and seventy dollars, you can get a swag that has outriggers, so you have a small awning that you could like sit under, and it has a seventy millimeter thick memory foam mattress built in for 270 bucks yeah so yeah maybe you should just buy one of those all right well it's been an exciting week and we'll probably have another kind of long show next week while we keep catching up on all the new shit all the listener questions uh thank you to all of our listeners for being patient while we are out in the woods doing fun stuff and hiking out big bags of elk and whatnot andrea She's got the meats. <laughs> I do have the meats. All right, everyone. Thank you all for listening, and good night. Thanks for tuning in to the Just Riding Along Show. There's some shit coming out of your great pads.